Thank you so much for leading us this morning, Sarah. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you please turn with me to First Peter chapter 3. Uh, we are going to pick up from where we or where Gordon left off last week, which is at verse 18. Today, as we return to this chapter and we push on into the next, it's, it's not going to get any easier. It's not going to get any easier. What we're about to read together in a moment is at times pretty confusing. There are a number of verses and a number of phrases and a number of ideas in this next section that have troubled lots of people, very learned people, for many, many years. So for example, we are about to read that at one point, Jesus went and he preached to imprisoned spirits. Who are they? What did Jesus say to them? We're also about to read that baptism saves you, which is a slightly controversial thought, isn't it? We'll also read how the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. How does that work? How does that happen? Martin Luther, church reformer, 16th century, said this about what we're going to read or about part of what we're going to read. He said, it's a wonderful text, but a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So, Gordon, it could have been worse. But there's, there's another problem, and actually it's really interesting because Sarah has kind of touched on this this morning. There, there is another problem with what we're about to look at. And, and by the way, I'm not going to deal in any great detail with any of the above obscurities. Not because I don't want to or I can't, although both of those are quite true. But mainly because I don't want to miss the bigger issue. I don't want to miss the main thrust of what I believe Peter is getting at. But let me mention the other problem with this text. If you have an NIV, or if you have a New Living Translation, or an ESV, an English Standard Version, or a Revised Standard Version of the Bible, you will notice that the heading of the paragraph or the section that contains verses 18 and following reads this. This is what it's at the title of an NIV, an NLT, an RSV, an ESV. It says this, suffering for doing good. Or else the title is Suffering for Righteousness' Sake. For those who have been following this series, you will know that Peter's writing to elect exiles. He's writing to Christians who are scattered all over the place geographically. But these are Christians who are experiencing a level of suffering for their faith. Now, it's not state-organized. It's not state-orchestrated suffering. It's on the ground everyday hassle and abuse from people for believing what they believe, for following Jesus, for living to serve and worship God, for doing good, for doing the right thing. And so Peter writes to these Christians who are having a really hard time, Christians who are constantly getting it in the neck, and he's writing to encourage them. He's saying, keep going, hang in there, hang tough. 
And he writes to remind them about who they are and how they should live their lives against this demanding and difficult backdrop. But you see, part of the problem with this is this. Or part of our, no, let me personalize this. Part of my problem with this is that, that I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can immediately or readily identify with the original recipients of this letter. Do I suffer for my, do, do we suffer for our faith? Do we? Do I experience everyday hassle and abuse from people for following Jesus? And if not, why not? Because Jesus said I should. And it's certainly the, the implication, the explicit implica- implication of so much of the rest of the New Testament. Followers of Jesus, genuine disciples who live out and speak out countercultural values should expect, they should experience opposition. Do I? Or am I, going back to what Sarah said, am I just comfortable in my faith? Just comfortable. Now, I know that there are believers in our world today who, absol- who absolutely do suffer and who can immediately identify with Peter's original recipients. There are 21st century disciples of Jesus who suffer simply because they follow Jesus, simply because they are Christians. But I'll be honest with you, church, I don't know if I can relate to them. I don't think I suffer on the ground as a follower of Jesus. So do you know what I've got to do? As I come to this text, I've got to work out, how can I relate to this text? Or maybe I need to consider, why is it I don't suffer adversity for being a Christian? And I'm putting that out there as I start this this morning because I honestly think it's a problem for us. Because our situation and our experience is somewhat quite different from the receivers of this first letter, maybe I'm out of order saying that, please challenge me afterwards. But because our situation is different, then do you know what happens? We grab hold of all those difficult little bits, the Jesus speaking to the imprisoned spirits, baptism saves you, the gospel being preached to the dead, and we home in on those and we argue over those and we debate over those and we talk about those and we actually miss the big issue. Okay, with all that by way of introduction. You still here? You sound very quiet. I can't see you. Let me, right, okay, you're still here with me. Right, let's stand for the public reading of this nightmare text. <clears throat> Verse 18 of chapter 3, it's on the screen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through this water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers 
in submission to him on into chapter four. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do or choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless way living, and they, they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Grab a seat. I... uh, I know I've used this phrase before, and, and I also know not everyone's a fan. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But in terms of authentic Christian faith, and in terms of getting our heads around what Peter's saying here, it really is all about Jesus. Peter's focus on Jesus is all over this letter, all over it. And in what we've just read, Jesus is once again front and central. Peter wants his readers to see Jesus afresh. To see Jesus not only as an example in suffering, but also to realize and appreciate what Jesus accomplished through his suffering and what it means for them right now in their current and all too real circumstances. And so there are two sections here, and I want to treat them separately. So you have verses 18 through to 22 of chapter 3, and then you have the first six verses of chapter 4. In verses 18 to 22, Peter refers to the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension or the exaltation of Jesus. In verse 18, he takes them to the cross, and he reminds them that Jesus suffered, and immediately there's an identification As they are suffering for doing good, as they are suffering for doing the right thing, so did Jesus. And he wants to get that out there and he wants to share that with them, but it's beyond that. Yes, Jesus is our example, but he's so much more. His suffering for obedience to God, for doing the right thing is exemplary, but it's also unique and it's unrepeatable. And so Peter makes the critical point that it was once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus, the one who never sinned, that's what the righteous one means, the one who never sinned, he died for or he died in place of the unrighteous, all those who have sinned, us. And he did that once. It was a once for all, unique, unrepeatable offering and sacrifice. And why did Jesus do that? Why? This is what Peter wants to get across to the recipients of this letter. Jesus did this, verse 5, in order to bring you to God. The reason, the purpose, the point was so that rebels like you and I could be brought back into relationship with God, our Father in heaven, to reconnect with our Creator. That is why Jesus died. That is why Jesus suffered. Jesus walked the path of righteous suffering, and in so doing, he blazed the trail, yes, for us to follow, but more than that, he opened the way for us to come home. 
Peter's trying to share with these guys. He is your example. He has walked the path, a similar path to you of righteous suffering. But you know, more than that, he did that so that you could come home to the Father. And as Peter writes, only makes the point that suffering and death did not have the last word. Jesus was put to death, but then he was, start of verse 19, he was made alive. Death was not the end. And already in this letter, and we've seen this during the series, Peter makes it clear that because of the resurrection of Jesus, those who have died in Christ will also live again. And so all of us, all of Peter's recipients have a living hope. They have a guaranteed future that is kept in heaven for them that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And if nothing else, what this communicated to the original readers who were under the cosh, who were having a hard time, was that their present sufferings and troubles were only temporary. Were only temporary. Yes, if this life is all there is, then what is the point? But if there is life after death, if there is life beyond the grave, if there is eternal life, then that awareness, that understanding, do you know what that does? That brings some sense of perspective to your current suffering and hardship. Jesus has been made alive. And Peter says, do you know something? And I've been writing this to you in the letter. Jesus has been made alive and Christians have been made alive with him. And therefore, although we may suffer, And although we will die, one out of one people die, it's guaranteed we will also live again. Death is not a full stop, it's a comma. There is more, so much more. And for people and for Christians who suffer in this life for their faith, that has the potential to bring perspective. That has the potential to bring hope, to bring understanding. Jesus suffered. He can identify with you. He is your example. He's walked the path of righteous suffering. But his suffering was unique. It was unrepeatable. He died once for all. The righteous died for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. But he's been made alive. And you have been made alive with him. And so your current suffering and troubles, it is only temporary. Now as we read on, I do have to make some comment about the second half of verse 19. Who are those imprisoned spirits? Turn around to the person beside you and have a chat about it. No. Who are those imprisoned spirits Peter refers to? And what did Jesus have to say to them? Well, at one level, I have no clue. Like if Luther said, I do not know certainly what Peter meant, like what's my chances, right? (laughs) No is the answer to that. Now, there are a number of different explanations, possible explanations, and this isn't the time, this isn't the context. If you do want to sit down and chat about this, I'm more than happy to do that. If you do want to go away and read about it, please do. But let me suggest the the most popular explanation for this. And that is that these imprisoned spirits are fallen or evil angels that are referred to in Jude 1 verse 6 who were locked up and imprisoned because they messed up and they messed up, which is a reference back to something that happens at the start of Genesis 6 just before the flood. You can go away and have have, have a look at this. But the point is this, that after Jesus was made alive, he went and he proclaimed his victory over them and over evil as the crucified and risen Lord. That is what we need to get our heads around. Who exactly at one level, yeah, we could debate that for long enough. The point is that when Jesus was made alive, after he was made alive, as it says that, he went and he proclaimed his victory over evil as the crucified 
and risen Lord. And then when you jump down to verse 22, I think I have it on the screen highlighted, as Peter goes on to talk about the fact, yes, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, he gets to the ascension of Jesus. He says, the exalted Jesus, whose present location is at God's right hand, he then confirms that these angels, these fallen angels, these evil angels, and all authorities and all the powers are now in submission to him. And so it is all about Jesus, who he was, what he did, and where he is. And therefore, a key point, or certainly one of them in these tricky verses, it was that Peter is clarifying now how Jesus endured righteous suffering, was made alive, proclaimed victory over evil, and is now exalted to the highest place. And as a result, here's the bit, as a result, God will sustain these people in their suffering. He will bring them through their suffering, and they will live forever with the risen and exalted Christ. And so to pick up on something Peter said in verse 17, have a look at it, I don't have it on the screen, have a look, it's where Gordon finished last week, where Gordon said it is better to suffer, or Peter said, and Gordon repeated it, uh, it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Here is the why, because Jesus did. And because Jesus suffered and because Jesus defeated evil, that therefore guarantees a glorious future for all those who back to the cross have been brought to God by Jesus, i.e. them, i.e. us. And I realize this is complex and there are other tricky issues in there, but for the Christians in this day, first century, scattered all over the place, who were suffering for their faith, and as many people today still do, Peter wanted to draw their attention to Jesus, to his death, to his resurrection, to his exaltation, in order to provide confidence in what Jesus has done and what it means for them, not only now, but what it means for them all, for all eternity. Present troubles are temporary. Victory is sure. Heaven awaits. That's it. Present troubles are temporary. Victory is assured. Heaven awaits. Okay, let's move on. Because in the second section, which starts in verse 1 of chapter 4, Peter again draws their attention to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He gets them to focus on Jesus. And he tells them that since Jesus suffered, a note, he says, since he suffered in his body. It's important to get that. Since he suffered in his body. Remember, he's fully human. And so Jesus was humiliated just as you're being humiliated. He was ridiculed as you're being ridiculed. He was abused just as the times you were abused. He was isolated. He was abandoned just as the times you are abandoned. He suffered in his body. You can identify this. And so since Christ suffered in that and in so much more, and remember, he did it for you, here's how you should live. Here's how you should respond. Here's how you should react. Here's how you should endure present temporary suffering. Verse one, arm yourselves with the same attitude. That's it. Arm yourself also with the same attitude. In other words, what Peter's saying, you've got to be prepared for suffering. You've got to be up for this. You've got to get ready for this. The Christian life's a battle. Suffering is inevitable. Back in chapter two, Peter wrote this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You're in a battle, you're in a war. Your heart is a war zone. It's a theater of conflict. Your life. We're involved in a fight. And because we live for Jesus and are following him, because to quote verse two, have a look at verse two, because we are now living for what? What are we living for? What should we be living for? For the will of God. 
We should be living to do what God wants. We should be living to obey God. We should be living godly lives, as opposed to, Peter says here, evil human desires. And because you're choosing to live for God, you're going to suffer. It's a cert. If you do what God wants, if you live God's way as opposed to your own way or the ways of the world, the flesh, and the devil, then you're going to get it in the neck. You're going to ruffle feathers. You are going to be ridiculed. You are going to be hassled. We will, says Peter, suffer because we follow Jesus and we have turned our backs on our old sin-dominated lives, our pagan lives, which is what that rather odd phrase means at the end of verse one, because I hope, I'm sure some of you picked up on this, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. Can you? In this life, can you actually be done with sin? doesn't mean those who suffer for their faith will become perfect in this life. No. And that somehow those who do suffer, that if those who are suffering in our world today, these first century Christians or anyone around us is suffering, that they are done and dusted with sin. No. It means that our suffering, now here's the, here's the difficult, it means that our suffering is an indication that we have chosen to live for the will of God as opposed to live for self. It means we're saying, listen, I'm done with sin. I'm finished with sinful living in that sense. That's my position. And because I'm adopting that position, because I want to live for the will of God as opposed to evil human desires, but opposed to my pre-Christian life, that is going to attract kickback. It's going to lead to suffering. And so we need to be, says Peter, he arm yourselves. You need to be prepared for this. You need to get ready for it. And Peter goes on to get specific, and so he comes up with a vice list of sinful living. And he makes the point that if you don't get involved in this stuff, like, like if you do genuinely ditch the human desires and you opt for the will of God, then people are going to heap abuse on you. People are going to be surprised whenever you don't join in the immorality, whenever you don't join in the lust whenever you don't get wasted the weekends, whenever you don't get involved in sexual promiscuity and view online or whatever pornography, whenever you don't just adopt the anything goes and attend the anything goes parties, whenever you just get involved in the worship of idols, when you just go after small g gods, people are going to heap abuse on you whenever you choose not to do all that stuff. Live differently and you will suffer which throws up the challenge. Because if we're not suffering in this world as Christians, could it be? I've been asking myself this all week. If we're not suffering as Christians for following Jesus, for countercultural living, could it be because at times we're still choosing human desires as opposed to the will of God? Like if we simply do what everybody else is doing, if we just go with the flow, if we blend in, if we compromise, no one's ever going to give you a hard time. To choose God's will is to choose suffering. And so Peter's advice is clear, arm yourself, be prepared for this. The question is, and the question I've been asking myself this week is, am I prepared for it? Peter finishes this little bit and I'm nearly done. Peter finishes this little bit with a solemn warning. It's a sober warning. He says, you see people who do give you a hard time, by the way? See people who do heap abuse on you? 
because you just don't go with the flow, do what everybody else is doing. One day they're going to have to give an account for their lives. Suffering for Christians is inevitable, but so is judgment for the living and the dead. No one escapes that. Suffering is temporary. Judgment's final. And it's another encouragement from Peter to say, listen, hang in there, hang tough. Living for God in this life may result in temporary suffering for the gospel, but living without God and inflicting abuse on those who do, that is going to result in guaranteed judgment, and that is going to have a devastating effect and bearing on their eternal life and on their eternal suffering. So the question is, as I went, what do we take from these verses? And I know, I know I haven't covered everything. But what do we take from these awkward verses? Well, let me, let, let me start with those who are finding it tough to be a Christian. Because people are giving you a hard time for doing the right thing. People are giving you a hard time for being a follower of Jesus. To you, Peter says, just look, look to Jesus. Just look to Jesus. He's not only your example of someone who suffered for doing good, but as a result of his unjust suffering, you can have and you do have the most important relationship in the world. You've been brought to God. And because Jesus is alive and because Jesus has conquered the grave, because Jesus has defeated death and evil, you will therefore live forever. You will be raised up just as Jesus was, just as Jesus is to a place of glory and honor for all eternity. Just look to Jesus. Yes, you will suffer now, but it's only temporary, so hang in there, hang tough, stay focused. Secondly, Peter says to those who are having a hard time, prepare for it. Be ready for it. Arm yourself also with the same attitude as Jesus. Live now and for the rest of your life for the will of God to please God. Keep living for him. Don't live for human desires. Don't entertain that vice list. That's contrary to who you are. And remember, when people give you a hard time for not joining them with that stuff, just don't forget, they're going to have to answer to God someday. God, God's going to have the last word in all of our lives. And then what about to those who are Christians and they don't really get this because suffering for their faith is not an issue? What does this text say? I'm not entirely sure what it says. Because that's who Peter wrote it to. So I'm, I'm not sure what it says to me. It doesn't suffer. Other than it brings a challenge to consider, what, why, David, what, why do you not get hassle for following Jesus? Too comfortable? Too settled? 